All right. We call us back. As we've worshipped in our praise, we've worshipped in prayer, we've worshipped in the response of affirming, installing leaders, and, and, and setting out um, uh, just a, a call on our people. And now we get to worship through the reading and preaching of God's Word. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 6, beginning in verse 10. We're going to actually make it through chapter 7, verse 14 today. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there, be, be there, and so that you can read and follow along as we work our way through it. Uh, let me read it, and then we'll pray again, and then we will see what the Lord has for us in it. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6, Solomon writes, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known, it is, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute the one with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell what man will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death, the, the day better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for, sad, the, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man, will not, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. It reveals your good work to us. That reveals your great nature to us. That enables us to know you to live in response to you, to see what you might be doing, that we can learn to trust you. And so I ask in this moment, as we sit before your word and under its preaching, that, Father, that's anything, that that your truth would be heard, that your spirit would apply it, that it would would strike and ring, ring true within your people, It would call us to repentance. It would call us to walk in faith. It would call us to live a life that's worthy of of you. We need you for this. I'm dependent upon you for this. So, Spirit, I pray that you would work. I see things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So being asked good questions can cause us to slow down and, and begin to kind of challenge some of our assumptions or some of the conventional wisdom that we hold. I mean, for example, most people aren't going to prefer going to a funeral as to a birthday party. It's, it's not that we won't maybe prioritize it, because if, if we're stuck on a day where we got to choose one over the other, maybe, maybe we would choose it, but I don't know that we'd prefer it. And Solomon, he's not just, he's asking these questions to begin to challenge us with this. This, this. this is not the first time he's done that. He's actually been doing it all along. All the way through the study of Ecclesiastes, he's been challenging us with these questions that cause us to slow down and, and reconsider some of the conventional wisdom that we kind of walk in. For example, just as an example, Ecclesiastes 1.3, you don't need to flip back there, let me, just, let me read it to you. He opens the book. The book opens with this question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If we're not ever challenged with that, if we're not ever asked to consider it or think about it, then we're going to think we gain a lot by our toil under the sun. Well, I get a paycheck every couple of weeks. I, I, I'm saving some money. I'm putting some money back. I'm preparing for retirement because I'm making some money. This question and then the teaching that follows is to demonstrate to us that there is no gain under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3.21, he asks the question, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? He's challenging our preconceived notions. He's challenging our conventional wisdom. What happens after death? From our perspective, if we're not told, if we don't have someone to instruct us, we can't see it. When a man dies and when a beast dies, when an animal dies or when a man dies, it doesn't look a lot different. We don't get to see some spirit rise up. We don't get to see some evidence of a man entering into God's presence. We see a man or a woman die. It's really easy to kind of begin to just walk in this conventional wisdom, especially in a very Christian culture, when we just assume. It's really easy to hear things like, well, so-and-so passed away. Well, they're in a better place. Are you sure? That's his question. In fact, the question that follows it in verse 22, So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He recognizes we must be told. We can't just know. And now, here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, he is ending uh, the chapter with, with these series of questions. In, in, in verses 7 through 9, he closes out this, this chiastic structure that, that we studied last week where he's making a point from both ends of, his, of the text and he's working his way to the middle of that text. He, he ends with these questions in verses 7 through, through 9. And then in chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, he kind of lays out some new questions that provide a transition into his next thought. Now, in last week's passage, we were shown that the reality of prosperity is not necessarily a blessing. It's conventional wisdom that if you have money, you must be blessed of God. If you are rich and wealthy, then God must love you more. If you're poor and hurting, then, then God must be angry at you. He must be seeking to punish you. That's what conventional wisdom tells us. But he showed us last week that just because we have stuff doesn't mean we're necessarily blessed. Prosperity is not necessarily a good thing. And this week, 
These questions, the Proverbs that are going to follow, and then the instruction that he concludes with is going to teach us that, that adversity or suffering is not necessarily a bad thing. Prosperity isn't necessarily good, and adversity is not necessarily bad. In fact, at the end of our passage, if you heard in verses 13 and 14, who can make straight what he has made crooked, what God has made crooked in the day of prosperity, be joyful in the day of adversity. Consider God has made the one as well as the other. Just because we face difficulty, just because we face some suffering, doesn't mean it's bad. But isn't that where we live? I mean, isn't that the time and the, and the, and the thought in which we live? The, the point that Solomon seems to be making, and I think this is the, the, the theme, the, the, the main point he's seeking to make through this passage, is that our sovereign God accomplishes his good work through the pleasant and the painful experiences of this life under the sun. He is at work in both. On the one hand, he gives us good gifts to enjoy. He gives us good things to enjoy so that we can sit down and enjoy them. And in those, we are certainly shown his sovereignty and our dependence upon him. But in our sinful condition, what we tend to do is begin to love the gift more than the giver. And that's why he confronted the love of money in, in, in last week's text. He confronted the people who love money more and who, who would give themselves to it and then find themselves empty-handed. He showed us a man who had been given everything except the power to enjoy it. I didn't say this last week, and I'm, I'm still questioning in my head whether I'm going to say it, but, but I, I'm going to say it, but whether I should say it. But how much more here we have an illustration of what hell will be like. I mean, you just consider it. Hell is not distance from God. God is everywhere. Hell is not a long ways away from Him. It's not a, a distance from everything that's good and great and worthy of joy. It is being in the presence of Him and yet not knowing Him and experiencing what's harsh and difficult and never knowing or having power to rejoice. Our, our, our ideas of hell are an absence of God. But the true definition of hell is to be in his presence and only know his wrath. To be given everything you could possibly desire, which at the heart of every person is God. And yet not be able to enjoy it at all, but only feel the, the, the wrath of it, the harshness of it. And then on the other hand, not only does he give us good gifts to enjoy, but he uses the painful things of this life to teach us, to mature us, to build wisdom in us, to cause us to see how deeply dependent we are upon him. And, 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 and that there, there isn't a lot of risk in this either. I mean, you think about how, how, how wise it is on his behalf. How many of us are going to love the difficult things more than the, the, the one who gave them to us? Oh, we'll run to the love of money because, oh, that feels good. 
I like money, and I like the things I think money provides for me. I'm going to fall in love with the, the thing that he intended for me to rejoice. I'll never fall in love with the difficult thing. I'll only learn to trust him more. See, in our fallen condition, we know one thing. If it hurts, we don't want it. But in it, we can learn to want him. In it, our desire for him can grow. In it, our desire for his provision, his protection, his presence, those things that our heart truly desires can and will this text shows us that in his sovereignty, he uses both the pleasant and the painful circumstances for our good and for his glory. And just look at it. We'll step into it, and you, you can quit listening to me just ramble on about some, some uh, opinions, I guess. But, but look at what he says in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what, it, what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one that's stronger than he He's telling us, Psalm is clearly demonstrating to us that, that someone knows what's coming and he's already named it. He's already determined what it's going to be. He's already given it a shape. He's already given it a character. He's already given it knowledge and, and intimacy. It's known what man is to be. He already understands it. He already knows it. And the more words, the more vanity. We can talk about it all we want. We can write books about it. We can demand God change it. We can plead with him to change it. But for our good and for his glory, he's determined that he won't change it. He sovereignly governs over all of these things, all the days of our life, both in the pleasant and the painful experiences of our life. Now Solomon might have learned this from his dad. David wrote about it in Psalm 139. David might have, have taught this to Solomon, and Solomon might have finally learned it and begun to believe it. I, I, I don't know, but, but in Psalm 139, speaking about the days before our birth, David writes in, in 139, verse 16, Your eye saw my unformed substance. Before I was, your eye saw me. Your eye saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God has known every day of every one of our lives before our calendar started ticking. Before our clock started Tick-tocking before the days of our calendar started counting. There's a reality that God has always known who you were and who you would be. God has always known you. He is the sovereign one. He has determined our days. He is the strong one that Solomon refers to in verse 10. He, we cannot stand against him. We cannot dispute with him. If we do, it just increases futility. The more we complain about it, the more we talk about it, the more we resist it with our words and our conversations, the more vanity, the more futility, the more emptiness. More words equal more futility. Because more words aren't going to change his mind about what he intends to do in his people. And what you're going to see, I think, in this passage is that God's purpose is greater than to just give us what we want. Think about that. How many of us jump up and run into difficulty because, oh, God's glory is there. How many of us are willing to say, man, when trouble comes, I rejoice in suffering, as we're called to in the New Testament? How many of us pine for the good old days when life was easier? 
And for those of you that were born recently, pine means long. It's like a, it's an, an old way to say that. <laughs> Sorry, shouldn't have done that. Came out before I filtered it. Sorry. But that's, who, who does that? I mean, certainly there are sick people in the world that do those kind of things. I don't, I don't want to dismiss that there are some sick people in the world, but we recognize there's something off about them typically. We typically put them on, on drugs to calm some of that down. We even make lock them up because they're a danger to themselves and to others. This isn't normal for us. It's, it's a strange thought to us. God's purpose is greater than to just give us what we want. He is not going to spoil His children. He's got a better plan than to feed us candy all the time. He's got, he's got vegetables that He knows we need to eat. You get that, right? I mean, that's, He has got a plan and a purpose for you, and it is greater than you just to get what you want. He loves you enough to give you what you need so that you can be who He intends you to be. When Solomon's shaping this out, he's beginning to give us that, that perspective. And then he asks two questions to challenge our conventional wisdom. In verse 12, you can see those two questions. He says, for who, who knows what is good for man? While he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes, which he passes like a shadow. This short life, this short time, this short life under the sun, if you will. It, it's a wisp of smoke. It's a short span of time in the whole, whole, whole scheme of things. Even 90 years in the, in the scheme of eternity is just a blip on the radar. Who knows what's good for a man while he lives here? Who can say what's good for us? Well, we think we can. Like I'm an adult. I get to make my own decisions. I know what's good for me. You don't need to tell me what's good for me. I already know what's good for me, and I'm going to take care of that. In fact, we don't just think we know what's good for us. We think we know what's good for everybody else. And we sit around and talk about it. We sit around and determine what's good for everybody else. If we don't agree with somebody's decision, what do we do? I can't believe they're doing that. Now, you may not talk to the person about it, but you can certainly second-guess them and think, oh, man, that's going to be, oh, man, that's not good for them. Who are you to say that? Who really knows? We're more like children than we like to admit. We don't have the experience nor the vantage point to truly know what is good. And why don't we have the experience or the vantage point? Because we can't see what comes next. We can't know what's good for us because we can't see what we need to be ready for. So this is why we make decisions for our children, right? This is why we, we feed them more than ice cream and candy. Because given to their own design and given to their own experience and given to their, their own, own, own uh, desires, well, there's a lot of things they wouldn't do that they need to do. I, I, I can tell you, at 18 years old, I thought I had it all figured out. My mom's back there nodding her head, smiling a little bit. You don't need to embarrass me. It's not a story I tell often, but, but at 18, my friend was outside we was about to drive to school. And I'm mad at her for something. And I got it all figured out. And I essentially cuss her out 
and walk out the door. She was gracious enough to follow me and ask me, what did you say? I said it again. Because I thought I knew it all. I thought I knew what was good for me. I could take care of myself. I could. Well, through the day, uh, being, uh, I mean, she had raised me. She, she had certainly taught me to, to better than that. And certainly that began to work on me. And I start feeling bad. I call her. And uh, the, I was actually sitting in the, in the school counselor's office. And she, I'm talking this out with her. And she's like, don't you think you need to call her? Not wait. It's like, yeah, I think so. So I called her at work and I apologized, uh, which I'm thankful I did um, for more than one reason. But, but, but realistically, when I got home, it, it settled in on me in a major heavy way. I walked into the porch. Our porch was in, is enclosed. It was enclosed. I, it still is for her. But, but walk into that porch, and on the porch is a black plastic bag. It's a leaf bag, black trash bag. I can't get in the house. The key that is supposed to be above the little thing is not above the little thing, and I got no way to get in the house. And I open that black trash bag, and, and my whole world's in that black trash bag. And I thought, oh, whoa, I don't guess I know as much as I thought I did. I don't guess I am as smart as I think I am. I don't guess I really know what's good for me. I was thankful for that lesson. I wished I'd have learned it better at that point. I had a lot of more come up in some moments in my life. But we put boundaries. We, we, we expect our kids to do certain things. We, we hold them accountable. We give them instruction. We teach them. And we, we, we even discipline them and make things hard for them because it's what they need, even if it's not what they want because they don't know what's good for them. Now, as much as you might be resisting me in this, in this moment, you don't truly know what's good for you apart from Christ either. In contrast to God, the sovereign God that we've already been introduced into to in this passage, you are still a child. Let that rest on you for a minute. And I'm not saying that to be rough or harsh or even, even intending to be too direct, but, but because it prepares you to hear the second question. <laughs> because it's the reason we don't know what's good for us. He asks, for who can tell man what will come after him? What will be after him under the sun? Who can tell the future? This question challenges us to think. and We can make plans, but how do we plan for what's next? We might have some, some idea of what's coming in the week ahead of us. But there are all kinds of variables that could change that at a moment's notice. There are all kinds of things that could change that in an instant. We don't know the future. We know this moment right now. We can, the closer it is to us, the more, more reason we have to kind of think we, we know what's next. Like, we already be, I'm, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch, right? But there's nothing that guarantees that moment. There's only one thing certain, and that's death. And I know some people say uh, certain, the only guarantee is in, in life is death and taxes. And Okay, but... But death undermines even the certainty of taxes. You may die before the next time you pay taxes. You may not make it till April 
14th, 15th, whatever that date is. And if you're getting taxes taken out of every paycheck, the reality of our circumstance and situation, I'm not trying to be morbid, you'll see why I'm going this way in a minute, but you will not, you're not even guaranteed to make it to your next paycheck because death can come at any moment. You see, we need God to show us what's good for us, to do for us what's good for us. Because he's the only one that knows what comes next. He's the only one that has any understanding of what the future holds. He's the one who has named what hasn't been yet. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Now Solomon doesn't answer these questions directly. He kind of just leaves them hanging out there for us. He just kind of hangs in for us and just asks them rhetorically. But it seems to me that the people Solomon is speaking to, the nation of Israel, who are, who are uh, under this covenant promise with God, this covenant agreement with God, who have been hearing the, the scriptures taught and, and, and seen the priesthood function and have heard about all that God has done in their past, it seems to me, and all the promise that he's made for them in the future, it seems to me that they're going to automatically answer that question in the same way we are. Who can know what's good for us? Who can know what's come to come after us? Our answer, their answer likely was our sovereign God. Think back to Ecclesiastes 3. He's already shaped that out in our mind for us. There's a season for everything under the sun, he says. A season for birth and a season for death. A season for planting and a season for plucking up. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to seek and a time to lose. Solomon lays out these contrasting seasons that God sovereignly sits over, both pleasant and painful, and then tells us in chapter 3, verse 11, that God assigns them to make everything beautiful. I even challenged you that day to consider the, the worst day of your life as God's child. As a child of God, the worst day of your life is still intended by Him for your good. See, God knows what's coming. He knows what, needs, what will prepare us to face the point of death. He, he knows what's after us under the sun. And He knows exactly how to prepare the people who will follow us to face it. So his good work, his good work in both the pleasant and even the painful circumstances to ensure that his will is accomplished. Again, last week I highlighted the, the, the pleasant circumstances, those pleasant gifts that we can sit down and enjoy and enjoy. But this week we see that God's good work focuses on is these painful circumstances. Even in the midst of difficulty, God is doing his good work. I mean, just consider this for a moment. Where we sit at today, how desperately we each need to realize this and, and, and understand it. Most of our life is about avoiding this. Consider the innovation. I'm sitting in here with a room that we can turn the lights on at the flip of a switch. So we can go to a thermostat and control the environment within which we live. Why do you think those things got invented? Because it's more comfortable. <laughs> it's easier. 
the innovations of computers and technology. I'm, I'm not suggesting we go back from that. I'm, I'm suggesting they don't really make our life easier. We're trying to. We're seeking to avoid the difficulty, and what we do is just fill our lives with more stuff and find more difficulty. See, God is at his work. There's nothing that's going to be able to stop it. When he has made something crooked, there's no amount of innovation, no amount of technology, no amount of man's power that can straighten it out. You're just going to find yourself wrestling against God. there's a better way and that's to see and learn and understand that he's teaching us so these things aren't happening because he's trying to punish you he is doing his good work to teach you he has got a greater purpose for you than to just give you what you want he loves you enough to give you what you need and we see that falling out as we get back into this passage we see that falling out in the in the proverbs that follow verses 7 uh, or chapter 7, verses 1, uh, all the way down through verse uh, 11. In the first section we come to, in verses 1 through 4, we could summarize that by saying a funeral is, better, is a better teacher than a birthday party. His point in this passage is not to say that, that when we die, it's better than when, the day we're born. It, it isn't a reference to your personal death or your personal birth. Instead, it's, it's, it's as we experience this in our life, as we have to go to funerals, as we have birthday parties to attend, he is saying that the, that the day of death is, is a better teacher than, than the day of birth. He isn't suggesting that we quit celebrating days of birth. It's not like we, okay, well, somebody just had a baby, let's not celebrate that. That's not what he's suggesting. But in contrast, as we compare them to one another, one teaches us more than the other. He wants us to see that there's value in attending the funeral. We all die. We're forced to think of death when we are sitting at a funeral. Most of us don't go to birthday parties and think about death. Right? Unless somebody's really old, you're like, how much more can they allow? But even that is considering their funeral. See, we're all going to die. That's the point he's making. He's like, hey, 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 listen. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning to the house of feasting. It's better to go and be taught by what's happening at the funeral. Because we're all confronted with the reality that we're going to die. And we must be prepared to die. See, God is in the business of making us good from the inside out. I skipped this. I want you to see this. In chapter 7, verse 1, the very first proverb he gives, the very first half of verse 1, a good name is better, is better than a precious ointment. God isn't just trying to make us smell good. God is in the business of making us good. Apart from him, you won't be. You might be able to slop some perfume on, or cologne, let's, it's male and female, right? You might be able to put something on to smell good, but that doesn't make you good. God is in the business of making you good, of giving you a good name. And so he says, a better teacher, a better teacher is a funeral than a birthday because it makes us really consider what's important. Sorrow, he says in the next verse, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. 
For by sadness of the heart, for by sadness the face uh, of face, the heart is made glad. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Let's think about this. If everything's funny, well, suddenly nothing is funny. Right? Have you ever considered that? If everything in life is a joke, then how do you even distinguish between what's funny and what's not? If everything, tr- try to make it funny, it, everything becomes not funny. There's no distinction. There's no, no, no difference. It's the same thing as trying to make everything a priority. If you prioritize everything, you can't prioritize anything. That's what he's saying. He's saying here that it's better to go and figure out what sorrow is, to be taught by sorrow, so that then you can really know what's enjoyable, so that then you can see the distinction, so that then you can see the difference. And he goes on, he says, not only is sorrow better than than laughter, but the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. It's at the funeral. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. When we consider this, you just consider this, The funeral teaches us to be wise. It teaches us to consider there's more that we need than what we just want. If we're just trying to live a good and easy life and we just don't want any troubles and just trying to be a joker all the time, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. There's a book that we, the elders read as we prepared for this series uh, by David Gibson. It's called Living Life Backwards. It's living in light of eternity so that it affects our life now, kind of is the premise of the book. He came up with some really great points in this, in this chapter, and, and I just wanted to read one for you. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along. It says, death is not just a line you cross when your time is up. Death is an evangelist. He looks us in the eye and asks us to look him right back with steady gaze and allow him to do his work. Death is a preacher with a very simple message. Death has an invitation for us. He wants to teach us that the day of our coming death can be a friend to us in advance. The very limitation that death introduces into our life can instruct us about life. Think of it as death's helping hand. See, when we're confronted with the reality of death today, it isn't intended by God to be morbid. It's not supposed to be gross. It's not intended to be easy. It is intended to cause us to realize that one day it's coming for us. And let's just move past the group think. It's coming for me. And it's coming for you. I can't see beyond it. I can't know what's on the other side. So it would be in my best interest to run to and depend on the one who can. We don't like it, but it's good for us. The next we see in the next section, verses 5 through 7, we see a wise rebuke is a better teacher than a fool's praise. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Again, nobody, no, no one likes being confronted. No one likes being told the truth. I mean, every one of us like to walk around and think we're all that and a bag of chips, right? Like we think we are all that and everybody else is the one with the problems. Now, we might know we're not the best, but so long as I can look around and see somebody that are worse off than me, I'm okay. 
But God, in his wisdom and out of a desire for our good, ensures, ensures by his sovereign will that we are confronted with the reality that we aren't all we think we are. He even records this in his word right here. But this is no isolated incident. This is, this is a perspective that's shared across the scriptures. But let me just share Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oh, man, the enemy, man, they'll come up here and make you feel so good. They'll fill you with, with all kinds of empty compliments and empty praise. In fact, Solomon compares them to, to thorns crackling under the pot. What, what he's saying is there's all this noise when the thorns burn, all this popping and crackling, but there's not enough energy to heat the water. It won't actually accomplish anything. It won't actually do anything. It's better to hear the rebuke of a friend. It's better the rebuke of the wise friend, I should say. He points out further advantages in verses 11 and 12, advantages of wisdom. It helps us in our day-to-day life. This is why God is shaping it out in us. That's why we need to hear rebukes. That's why we need to be confronted with death, because there is advantage in wisdom in our day-to-day life. It's like money. He points out in verses 11 and 12, money has some advantage. It is easier in ways to live this life if you have money than if you don't. But in the end, neither measure up. Neither fix the problems that we face. And so in both of them, there's limitations and we find more vanity. But Solomon makes the point about how necessary it is that we hear from the wise friend, the rebuke of the wise. Now, I don't mean to tread on the memory of people. I don't mean to be disrespectful to people. But I was thinking about this the other day, and and, and I was even in this conversation, and, and this thought came to mind, about Michael Jackson and Prince. And what if Michael Jackson, or Prince, who, let's just consider this, and again, I'm not trying to be rude or hurtful about this. I mean, they were both obviously very successful, very talented in their way. But Prince, at a point in his life, decides he wants to change his name to a symbol. And so you can't even call him by name anymore. Like, in fact, they have to start referring to him as the artist formerly known as Prince. Because there's no word attached to his symbol. How foolish is that? Like, what if, what if somebody had loved him enough or loved Michael Jackson enough to say, brother, that's foolish. Don't do that. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you stand out and look so silly in front of people? What if somebody was wise enough and loved them enough to tell them, no, no. God is pointing to us. He's showing us we need those people in our life. He purposely puts those people in front of us. That we don't just get a lot of popping and crackling under a fire as if it's real. We get somebody that can really be used by God to shape us. To create that heat within us. Now, wisdom has its distinct advantages and this is one of them. But it also has its limitations. Notice what he says. He says that, that, um, that where's that? Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and bri- a bribe corrupts the heart. The reality is, is that women, wisdom in this life is limited by our brokenness. When we're oppressed, we don't act very wise. We don't give wise advice. And when we're bribed, we can be tempted by all kinds of things to say something that's 
We can be motivated by all kinds of false motives to say something that's not right. In part, in large part, I think that's why God gave us his word. So that we can't just make up what we want. In fact, if you read the New Testament, 2 Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy, last letter he's going to write. He's making sure he gets out all those final things that need to be said. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Now you might think, oh, well, God wants us to know about all how good he is and how good we are and what's so great about us. And, but that's not where, where, where Paul goes with it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. It's confronting. That's, that's showing error. That's demonstrating that there's something wrong. For correction. So you're not just hearing what's wrong, you're being shown what's right. Because believe it or not, we don't naturally know. We're still like kids who need to be shown by God what is truly good for us. For training in righteousness that, man, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, in every, equipped for every good work. We want the equipped for every good work. We assume we're already ready. God says, no, you need my word. You need the wise counsel that comes from my word. Wisdom is limited by our fallenness, but his word is always wise. It's always right. And then in his infinite wisdom, he determined that even though we're fallen, he was going to use us to make sure his word was heard. Even for those who would never read it, they still can hear it. And so Paul charges Timothy, very next chapter, very next verse, there's no real break in line of thinking. Paul says his very next words, just in context, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by, appearing, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Don't preach your opinions. Don't preach some false conventional wisdom. Don't tickle people's ear. Preach the word because our wisdom is limited, but God's is infinite. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Oh, man. Here it is again. The very thing God gave us his word for is what he intends his preachers to do. Reprove. Correct. Show error rebuke. Whoa, man, that sounds even a little tougher. It is. Confront. Call people in their sin. Not by my opinion, not by the preacher's opinion, but in light of the word. Let the word of God do its work to reprove us, to rebuke us, and then exhort us that we might finally look to God, the one who knows what's good for us, and the one who knows what's coming next. Why else would we do it? Because it's not natural to us and our wisdom is limited. And at some point we're going to say, oh man, you've suffered too much. I can't believe God's doing this to you. Because our wisdom is going to fail. But his never will. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. As for you, preacher, it's easy to say that applies to me, but anybody who would speak God's word because they love their friend so much, this applies to you. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your 
ministry, whether we like it or not, even when it isn't comfortable for us, God puts people in place to reprove us, to rebuke us, and to exhort us by his word. This is better. Even if completely uncomfortable, it is better to hear that rebuke than be given foolish praise, to be sung foolish songs to. God does this because he knows it's good for us. He knows what's coming after us. And the third, I, I would suggest that in, in during the, the next way we see in these Proverbs that God is out for our good in the midst of difficulty is that we see enduring difficulty is a better teacher than a life on easy street. You can see that in verses 7 through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Now, I would summarize these to demonstrate that there are times and seasons and circumstances in which aren't always going to be pleasurable. Things that make us angry, he says, don't be too quick to be angry. Things that are difficult, patient spirit. Because the end is better than the beginning we, we, the, the saying goes, all's well that ends well, is that way because all's well that begins well isn't true. The testament of a person's life is not how they started, but how they finished. God is not in the, in the business of just making you smell good. He's in the business of giving you a good name. He is in the business of making the sinful man good. That's why this is all happening. That's why Solomon tells us, don't look back on those good old days and think that they were better because the reality is you're in this day because God intends it. We long for the good old days and we look forward to better days, but God says live right now. Live right now. Quit wanting something different. Quit thinking that you need something different. He is sovereignly ruling in both pleasant and painful circumstances for your good and for His glory. And if you ever question it, if you ever wonder, well, man, I, I can't know that. How can I possibly know that? Solomon tells me I can't know that. He says, who, he, he's doing this so that I can't know what's coming after me. Well, Solomon was living, looking forward to a promise. We live in a day and age where we look back on the fulfillment of that promise. See, Solomon didn't know what was coming next, but in the gospel, God has made the mystery known. In Christ, we can have confidence that everything we endure is for our good. Romans 8, 28 through 30, the revelation of this good that's coming through the difficulty. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose to be given a good name. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son to be given a good name. To be made good. To be radically changed. To be radically made something you're not by yourself. If you ever wonder, if you ever are concerned, all things work together so that you can be conformed to the image of His Son. He is doing everything in your life 
to show you your need, to show you your dependence, that you might run to him to see to the one who knows what's good, to the the one that knows what's after, so that you might be conformed to the image of his son, so that you might look like Jesus, so that you might live in and under and through his name, so that you can carry that name into all eternity. If you ever doubt it, you consider Christ. That's what God is doing for your good. If you ever doubt it, consider Christ. Because in Christ we have confidence that everything we endure is for His glory. Which is for our good. Romans 9, 22-24. Just a few verses over. Same line of thinking, essentially. But Paul, what if God... Desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What if everything he's doing, and Paul's asking the question with the answer in mind, What if everything he's doing is to show his glory so that you might enjoy his glory? If you ever doubt it, if you ever question it, if you ever think, I can't know, God in Christ has made you able to know. You consider Christ, our sovereign God, accomplishes his good work through pleasant and painful experiences of this life under the sun. I want to share with you one last perspective on this. Uh, from Jeffrey Myers, who wrote a book called Table in the Mist, makes a compelling point that he first introduces in the introduction, but I think speaks exactly to what Solomon is trying to teach us here. He writes, Though Adam and Eve began their biological life as adults, they were nonetheless children in their experience of life and the world. They were nonetheless children. They were adults, but they were nonetheless children. They didn't have the vantage point. They didn't have the experience. They're just two people that God's given commands. He says, Jeffrey Myers goes on, he he writes, It seems evident that God's program for them was to gain wisdom through their experience of life and the world, patiently waiting for God to grant them the gift of royal judicial authority symbolized by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As Adam faithfully ate of the tree of life, giving thanks to God for his life, and as he diligently guarded and served the Garden of Eden and his new wife situated in the midst of the garden, he would slowly mature into the kind of man qualified to rule over God's creation. This was the plan anyway. You just think about that. They'd been given everything they wanted. Everything they needed. Abundance upon abundance upon abundance. One thing withheld. They'd been given purpose, and and they did it all in the presence of God and could have grown that way. That was the plan anyway. The tragedy recorded for us in Genesis 3, however, is that Adam failed to guard the garden and his new bride from the attack of the serpent. They seized what God had asked them to wait for. As a result, they were banished from the garden with fatal consequences. Adam presumptuously and prematurely snatched what would have been his if he had just trusted God's promise. He listened to the serpent and decided he didn't want to wait for God's permission to rule. The seductive power of being like God now and ruling like him, judging good and evil, overcame our original parents. God's plan, however, was not thereby thwarted. God's program for the maturation of human humanity continued now, however, after the fall. 
Mankind would learn and grow into a mature image of God only through intense suffering and the curse of death. God isn't out to hurt you or destroy you. He's out to make you his. Make you into the image of his son to give you a good name that will last forever and ever and ever. He sovereignly sits over both the pleasant and the painful experiences. So when you face the prosperity, for the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So rather than question him, trust him. Trust him. Believe him. Listen to his word. Listen to the wise counsel of his people. Trust him. Rather than resist him, submit to him. Rather than looking back all the time or looking forward all the time, live right now. Jesus told us that don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough, or today has enough troubles of its own. The reality is so did yesterday. So did yesterday, and so will tomorrow. Live right now. Learn right now what God intends you to learn. Submit to Him. Quit resisting Him. God is at work through both the painful and the pleasant. For your good and for His glory, so rather than run from Him, rather than seeking to avoid all the trouble, follow Him. Endure Every day, as Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Let's pray. Father God, we are going to need you to help us do this. We don't just need your word. We need your work to do its work in us. To grow us, mature us, and develop wisdom in us that we might live in the light of this truth. And so would you do it today? Would you make it real, make it true, grow us even closer to that good name you've already given us? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.